Welcome, everyone. This portion is called Korach. It's the book of Numbers, chapters 16 through 18. And uh, let's say a blessing for uh, studying Torah together. Um, and uh, then we'll begin. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who has makes us holy through your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging with the words of the Torah. Okay. Um, uh, hold on one second. There we go. Um, okay, this portion is a portion about a uh, insurgency and a rebellion against leadership. And every year I come to it and I say, am I gonna talk about that again or some other aspect of the portion? But it remains so relevant um, that we're going to investigate it once again, in the heart of its narrative. So let's remember where we are. The children of Israel have just learned that they're not going to be able to go directly to the promised land, that they're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They've just learned this. And can you imagine the state of the body politic uh, at this point? Um, do you think the leadership is solid and loved by their followers? Uh, it's a tough moment. Um, and as you know, the whole book of Numbers is a book about leadership, about being a co collective, a community, a society, about how to travel together, how to journey, about how to, can we do it? How does the how does the population relate to leadership? How does leadership relate to the population? So let's just say um, it's always relevant. And in this portion, just to give you a sort of summary, Korach, who was Moses and Aaron's first cousin, uh, gathers 250 notables uh, leaders to challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership. And uh, that's what we're going to read in just a moment. In a very dramatic chapter, uh, they, their, their attempt uh, fails completely. And uh, then there's, a, 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 they, there's a, an elaborate description of what the Levites, which is the tribe that Moses and Aaron are from, and uh, the, um, Aaron is the high priest of the Levites, and the rest of the Levites, like Korah, are tasked with caring for and maintaining the tent of meeting, the sanctuary where God's presence dwells in the midst of the camp. It describes all the ways that the Levites get supported by the other tribes. The other tribes have to bring their first fruits, their sacrifices, their offerings, their tithes. In other words, the Levites have it pretty good. Um, they, they get the best cuts of meat, they get the first fruits, they get the, but it turns out 
that there's a check and a balance on this, which is that the Levites are not permitted to own property. So remember, property in ancient Israel was an agricultural society, meant the means of production. Everything was based on whether you owned land or not and could produce crops. So yeah, the Levites get the first and best of everything as part of their uh, position, but they don't own or control the means of production. So perhaps that's a balance that needs to be kept in mind. Furthermore, we learn that the Levites, when they receive tithes, are required to make a tithe from their tithe to God. Everyone has to give to the upkeep of the sanctuary, even the people who work there. So it's interesting to consider the, in this setting, the leadership position of Moses, Aaron, the high priest, and the rest of their tribe, the Levites, because even though they are at the center of um, power in the life of the children of Israel, uh, they also are reliant on, um, on uh, the uh, continued cooperation of all the folks who are producing the goods and uh, uh, resources of this society in order to maintain their position. So being the high priest probably looks pretty good to your average, uh, uh, your average Israelite, right? Aaron has this incredible costume he gets to wear. Um, they get to carry the, they get to carry the uh, holy objects and they have special ox carts and they get all the donations and it must be great being a Levite. On the other hand, if you think about the nature of this ancient society, Aaron's job is to go into the Holy of Holies, which, if you read the Torah, is a place of extreme, extreme mortal danger, because that's where the, the creative presence of the universe dwells, which is always breaking out uh, of its boundaries and uh, causing um, destruction and death when it's not properly uh, served and contained. Uh, Aaron's job is to carry the sins of the people into the Holy of Holies and ask God for forgiveness on behalf of all the people. Uh, now, you can either look at that as a glorious position of leadership or as an onerous and a really heavy task, which is, again, a good metaphor for leadership. You know, yeah, you get to be up and uh, at the microphone and you get to be, uh, you get to wield power, but you also, if you are, understand your oath of office, um, you are also there to serve, to be a, a servant, a true public servant. Aaron is a true public servant. Moses too, who um, uh, is the lawgiver, is also uh, has a, a, an, aston an, an, an astonishingly heavy burden to carry, which he frequently pleads to God to help uh, lighten, which is the burden of leading the people and of being the source of judgment and law to, and order to the community. So 
one of the beautiful things about Torah for me, the profound things, is that one way to read it is as a meditation on leadership, on the body politic, all of those, all of those things. And there have been books written about it. I, um, I have a book on my shelf called Moses as Political Leader by an Israeli scholar that just deals with that, his, the stories of Moses from that perspective. A whole, you know, it's easy to write a whole book about it. Okay, so with that introduction, the, the children of Israel, as I said, have just learned that they're going to drop dead in the wilderness. So the moment is ripe for an insurgency. And Korach steps forward. So let's put the, the text up, Gwen, and we'll just read the first uh, section of this portion. Thank you. Now there, betook himself Korach, son of Yitzhar, son of Kahat, son of Levi, and Datan and Abiram, the sons of Eliav and On son of Pelet, from the tribe of Reuben, Reuben, to rise up before Moses. Vayakumu, Lifnei Moshe. That is a good translation. It was an uprising. Uh, and they raised up with Anashim Ibnei Yisrael, Chamishim Matayim Nisi'ei Eda, Kriemo Ed Anshishem, with men of stature from the children of Israel, 50 and 200 leaders of the community, those called in the appointed council, men of repute, men of name. Okay. Uh, they assembled against Moshe and against Aharon and said to them, Rav lachem, too much is yours. Or often translated as, you have gone too far. You have taken, you've, you've taken too much. Uh, indeed, the entire community, the entirety of them are holy. And in their midst is yod Vafe. In other words, God is in all of us. We're all a holy people, remember? We all said yes at Mount Sinai. Why then do you exalt yourselves over the assembly of yod Vafe? Okay, think of this as dramatically as you can. Moses and Aaron, and here come Korach, his first cousin, their first cousin, a man of uh, renown and wealth, assembling leaders from the tribe of Reuben and 250 other notables from the community saying, you've taken too much for yourselves, too much power, too much wealth. Uh, and uh, uh, aren't we all children of God? Now, when Moshe heard, he flung himself on his face. That prostration is a typical response of Moses's. Um, what does it represent? Uh, his humility, his despair, perhaps. Um, oh, just one sec. I just have to get my chat open so I can see if you write anything in. You're always welcome to raise your hand or to write something in the chat. Um, and uh, Moses fl flung himself on his face. Then he spoke to Korach and to his entire community saying, 
At daybreak, yod heh vav he will make known who is his and who is holy, and he will declare him near to him. Um, who, in other words, he will declare who is to lead, the one that he chooses, he will declare near to him. This do then, take yourselves your fire pans. Okay, your fire pan was your incense, uh, your incense um, pan. And part of the high priesthoods and the Levites' ritual responsibilities was the incense that was a central part of the worship and service in the tent of meeting. So they all had a copper beaten incense pan. I'll just say historically that when the temple was destroyed in the first century, the incense burning that uh, was part of the ritual there, um, which as I understand it, my best understanding is it, it, the smoke of the incense was supposed to remind people of the smoke, the, sm the, 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 the dark smoke that uh, on Mount Sinai, the presence of God that Moses entered into um, that uh, uh, prevented others from seeing the divine. So uh, one of the things to remember about the whole way the temple, the sanctuary is set up in the camp is it's a recreation of the experience at Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, 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 so incense also, for those who know much more about uh, um, uh, um, healing oils and sacred herbs and all of that was a very specific combination of spices and herbs. So that probably also had properties of healing or even maybe consciousness changing that were part of the, the ritual. Not something I can speak to with any, um, uh, with any authority. Um, let's see, Joan said, feels like Moses is frustrated and fearful for what will happen to the people because of their rebellion. Could be, yes. And Joel says, is it possible that what has happened since the last portion is Moses is being tested? Um, yes, also possible. Yeah. Um, so when the temple was destroyed in the first century, um, the incense, and as many of you know, the priesthood itself, the Levites, they lost their job. And we never took those practices into our synagogues. The Catholic Church, on the other hand, retained all of it. And so when you see someone swinging the incense censer in a Catholic mass, and the priest walking up behind the uh, uh, public area into the area that only the priest can enter, these are all recapitulations of the ancient practice in Jerusalem. So they still have the incense bearers in um, um, Catholic Church. Okay, that's just a little a little interesting aside there. So I think I'll read a little more, and then we'll we'll discuss. Uh, uh, put fire in your incense pans. I'm in verse seven now. 
before the presence of Yudhebave tomorrow, and it shall be. The man whom Yudhebave chooses, he is the holy one. You have taken too much for yourselves, sons of Levi. Same phrase, Rav Lachem, you have gone too far. And just like they said to him, you've gone too far, Moses. No, you've gone too far. The power struggle is on. Pray, hearken, sons of Levi. Is it too little for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring you near to him? Come on, you're already working in the sanctuary to serve the serving tasks of the dwelling of Yudhe to stand before the community, to attend on them? God has brought near you and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. Now you want to seek the priesthood as well? That's Aaron's position. Truly, it is you and your entire community that come together against yud heh vav As for Aaron, who is he that you should grumble against him? Our translator said, what is wrong with him that you should grumble against him? And the Hebrew says, uh, as for Aaron, um, uh, Mahu, who is he? Uh, he's not, he, 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 there's the phrase, uh, that you complain against him. And then Moshe sent to call Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab. Okay, I want to pause there because I want to get to that next paragraph in a little while. So what's your impression of this public confrontation so far? Uh, anybody anybody want to share anything? No, it's Mahu or Mihu. Could be either, Joan. Who is he? What is he? I don't think it's significant. A war of ego? Sure. Korach? Yes, Nancy notes they're all cousins, which I like to think of as um, Korach, as the rabbis take it, therefore, is from the utterly privileged classes, right? He's the leader's first cousin. And uh, the, the, he is, uh, according to other references to Korach in the Bible, a man of great means also. So who is this Korach? Yep, what do you think you are, better than us? Better than we are? So who is Korach? For the rabbis, he is someone who already has a lot of power and privilege. And yet, he speaks in the language of populism. Uh, he says, essentially, all the people are with God. God has spoke to all of us. We're all holy. Why do you raise yourself above us? So you might read that as, yes, what's all the hierarchy here? Um, yes, Korach, as Joan says, is speaking for equality of the people. Or is he? Uh, there's no, and is it possible that Korach is projecting? Absolutely. Uh, 
Blaze says, according to Rabbi Sachs, it is an argument to take power, which is what those who don't have want. And an argument not for the sake of heaven, but for the sake of taking power. He takes, says Roberta, rather than gives or receives. So he is out of the flow of life unfolding. Okay, what is this taking, everybody? <clears throat> Go back to verse one. <clears throat> There's this strange use of the word take. By yikach korach. That's how it opens up. And as usual, the rabbis look for the core of their clue right in the opening of the Parsha. It doesn't say, uh, it says, now Korach took. And it's not good grammar in Hebrew. And you Korach, want a different translation? No, 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 no. It's fine. Because the, every translator is going to struggle with this. Because what it says apparently is, and Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kadpan took. And Datan and Aviram, the son of Zaveliav, and On Ben-Pelet, Ben-Eruvain, and they up, rose up before Moses. So this is a strange way. It would usually say, um, they stood up, um, they approached. Um, so what is this he took? And it's in the singular. Um, and so this becomes the core of our tradition's understanding of what's wrong with Korach. Uh, what was he taking? Somehow, the, the Torah wants us that he's taking something. He's not offering something. He's taking power. And an interesting um, midrash, that interpretation that works as well in Hebrew as in English, is that he took them in with words. He takes them in. He snookers everybody with his words. <sighs> Do I need to even allude to our present moment? Um, drain the swamp. Where do you get to, if you want to talk about make America great again, where do you get to the next part where, it, where um, the Reubenites uh, speak? Um, the rabbis conclude that this is the language of populism by leaders who actually simply want to acquire something for themselves. Um, it is, this is an eternal story. Um, and the rabbis whose commentaries are very pointed knew just as much about demagogues as we do today. Um, it's as old as human um, affairs. So Korach took, he either took people in with words, he took for himself. This strange language becomes uh, an ungrammatical language, becomes the linchpin of how we understand Korach. And he says, Moses and Aaron, you have taken too much for yourselves. That's uh, uh, too much is yours. Um, uh, you have gone too far. Rav lachem. It's in verse three. Thank you. Um, so now, who does Korach rally to his side? 
This is really interesting. He rallies two leaders from the tribe of Reuben. Reuben. What do we remember about Reuben? Reuben is Jacob's firstborn son. Why isn't Reuben in charge? What happened to Reuben? Why is the tribe of Levi in charge? Some of you I'm sure remember. Um, Reuben, it says, and when Jacob is uh, charging his children in his final blessing and testament, says, Reuben slept with my um, concubine, Bilhah. You climbed up on my bed. You're not getting a share in anything of leadership later. So Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, was long ago written out of the will, long ago disenfranchised uh, for, um, their, for his behavior. And I'm, one might assume that the descendants of Reuben have been nursing grievances for a long time in a society where the firstborn was essentially king of the hill. And they are not. They're just one of the 12. I can imagine Korach saying, hey guys, what about that Moses? He's a Levite. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't, let's see, Joel said, is part of the message in the passage that to be proper, once you give the motion, notion, should the, the give the uh, uh, motion should be outwards and Korach was only looking at taking in, not giving out. I think that's a good metaphor, yes. And Gail said, that is the usual interpretation, but it's not just Korach standing up. It's also Datan and Aviram and 250 others who are men of repute. And a while ago, Miriam and Aram also complained about Moses. Maybe Korach just takes the position of leadership within the angry community. Very nice. Yes, we have a community, remember, that just heard that they're going to drop dead in the wilderness and not get to their destination. Can you imagine the seething rage, frustration, resentment in this community? Uh, Moses has just, they are ripe. They are ripe to rebel against Moses. The question is what Korach's motivations are. Moses has just been told he will not enter the Holy Land. Now he's being attacked by his priests. His response is highly emotional, says Carol flung himself on his face. He is ready to give it all away again when he says, okay, let God decide. And God gives him what he needs right then. Yes, maybe Moses over and over says, I don't want this job. Give it to somebody else. Remember in Bahalotcha two weeks ago, um, or was that last week? Yeah, two weeks ago in Bahalotcha, Moses said, would that all of God's people were prophets. Um, do this, take me out and shoot me. The whole thing is so fraught um, that the back, the, sto the back story, if we really use our imaginations and follow the thread of these chapters in numbers, things are barely under control, barely, barely under control. And now they've just received the worst news they're ever going to receive. And so the question is, who's going to capitalize on that um, discontent. Again, you could make an argument that Korach is just 
justified in doing so. And as I've studied this portion for decades, I can never crank myself around to that point of view because um, uh, uh, of, um, well, because of what happens next. Listen to what the Tan and Abiram say, the, the Reubenites, who I picture having been, um, having their own, their own grievances stoked also. Um, they say in verse uh, uh, 12, Moses sent to call Datan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, Lo na'ale, we will not appear. And then they say in their statement, so again, I picture this as like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Moses subpoenas them. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to picture this. And they say, we're not coming, but we will have a press conference where we are going to announce the following. Uh, was it not enough uh, that you brought us, listen to the dripping sarcasm of this rhetoric, that you have brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey to cause our death in the wilderness? And now you play the prince over us, even the prince? Then too, not to a land flowing with milk and honey have you brought us nor have you given us an inheritance of field and vineyard. The eyes of these men, would you gouge out? That's a metaphor in ancient Hebrew for, are you trying to hoodwink us? You think we're blind? We will not go up to meet with you. Or we could also say go up to the land. It's interesting. Um, but we will not go up to meet with you. So in this piece of public statement, the tribe of Reuben says, you know, was it not enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? What kind of statement is that? They just came out of slavery in Egypt where their baby boys were murdered, where their work was so brutal that their spirits have been broken. And yet they're claiming that that was the land of milk and honey. Just like again in Bahalotcha, when after they left the mountain of Mount Sinai, they said, uh, we remember Egypt where we had all the fish and melons that we wanted for free. So uh, let's see what Wendy said. Maybe God is teaching Moses how to be a leader one situation at a time. And now he needs to learn to lead through a possible civil war or succession, maybe. So what we have here is amazing rhetoric about the good old days. And, um, and then the claim that you not only took us from a land flowing with milk and honey to bring us, to kill us here in the wilderness, but now you've also made yourself prince over us. We're not coming. Then Moses became exceedingly upset. And he said to Yodhe do not turn your face toward their grain gift. What does that mean? Their mincha. It, it, they have brought offerings to the um, sanctuary to be offered to God on the altar. That's the grain gift. And he says, don't pay, don't, don't accept their grain gift. Uh, 
listen, not even one donkey of theirs have I carried off. I have not done ill to even one of them. That's what Moses says. They're claiming that I'm trying to raise myself up over everybody. But I haven't even, I haven't taken a single, you know, I haven't taken a single charter flight on, on one of these guys' jets. I haven't done anything. I've been completely transparent in my leadership. And this is the quality of Moses, by the way, that is consistent. Um, later, I mean, earlier, when all the um, uh, gifts to build this beautiful sanctuary, traveling portable Mishkan in the wilderness were given, there's a whole portion called Pekude, which means accountings, where Moses gives an accounting of every penny, every offering, every donation, so that it's absolutely clear that he's not enriching himself in his position. And uh, Judy, again, what goes around comes around. Uh, this is as old as human nature. Uh, leadership can only be trusted to the degree that they are transparent, that they're not enriching themselves. Uh, that's what it means to be a public servant. And Moses in the Jewish tradition is the quintessential public servant because he, um, uh, he is not doing this job because of his ego. Over and over again, and it's gonna happen momentarily, God says, that's it, I'm killing them all. This is like the third time in a few weeks. And Moses says, God, don't do that. I don't want to, I don't want to become a great nation myself. I didn't even ask for this job, but since you gave it to me, uh, since I was essentially in, I had no choice but to take this calling, um, I'm not doing it to aggrandize myself. And so clearly Moses is being, and Aaron are being uh, accused of using their power for personal gain. Moses protests as strongly as he can that that is not the case. Why is Korah accusing him of this? And again, the rabbinic midrash about this and expansion of it is that Korah is in it for himself. And in one of the, as you, I'm sure you've heard me church teach before, if you've heard, heard me teach, um, the rabbis feel this so strongly that they say that there are two kinds of conflicts, two kinds of debates, two times, two kinds. Uh, one is either for the sake of the common good, the Shem Shamayim, or, and those conflicts, those debates will endure, uh, or uh, the other kind of conflict is, will not endure because it's not for the sake of the greater good, but for the sake of self-aggrandizement. Um, what is an example of a dispute that is not for the sake of the greater good? The dispute raised by Korach and his followers. The Torah and rabbinic commentary feel that Moses is essentially unimpeachable in his, the quality of his personhood 
and the reasons that he leads. And the Torah in general and Jewish tradition afterwards holds an extremely skeptical and jaundiced view of political leaders um, and tries to put in checks and balances against them um, when they're in power. The most, uh, in this week's Haftorah portion, which is the portion from the books of prophets, Samuel is confronted in the same way as Moses. Can you put that up, uh, Gwen? Sorry, the um, box didn't translate this. Oh, right, right. Good. JPS will be fine. JPS, there you go. Good. Okay, so who's Samuel, everybody? Um, Samuel is the greatest prophet to arise in ancient Israel since Moses. And Samuel is the last of the prophets to lead the 12 tribes before they become a kingdom under King Saul. And so in Samuel, we read, when Samuel grew old, this is, of course, um, centuries after the passage with Moses. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and his second son's name was Abiyah. They sat as judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not follow in his ways. They were bent on gain, they accepted bribes, and they subverted justice. So all the elders of Israel assembled and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you have grown old and your sons have not followed your ways. Therefore appoint a king over us to govern us like all other nations. Samuel was displeased when they said, give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord replied to Samuel, Heed the demand of the people and everything they say to you. For it is not you that they have rejected, it is me they have rejected as their king. This is one of the um, important themes of the Torah, that we shouldn't have an earthly king to whom we ascribe a divine right, because we understand that all humans are made in the divine image, all are corruptible, all need to follow the law all need to control their impulses, even kings. And, uh, uh, and so Samuel then turns to the people. Um, oh, and God says, like everything else they have done ever since I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and worshiping other gods, so they are doing to you. Heed their demand, but warn them solemnly and tell them about the practices of any king who will rule over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Thank you. And I'll just repeat, the reason I'm reading this passage is because our ancient sages chose this passage to accompany this week's Torah reading. And I've, under, I've come to learn that the rabbis choose the Haftorah passage because it amplifies their understanding of the thrust of the Torah reading. So this in a sense, in, in essence, functions as a commentary on the Torah reading. So Samuel said, this will be the practice of the king who will rule over you. 
he will take your sons and appoint them as his charioteers and horsemen, and they will serve as outrunners for his chariots. He will appoint them as his chiefs of thousands and of fifties, or they will have to plow his fields, reap his harvests, and make his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will seize your choice fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his courtiers. He will take a tenth part of your grain and vintage and give it to his eunuchs and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves, your choice young men and your asses, and put them to work for him. Uh, an emendation says it's not men, but um, uh, cattle, if you change one letter of the Hebrew, and your asses and put them to work for him. And he will take a tenth part of your flocks and you shall become his slaves. The day will come when you cry out because of the king whom you yourselves have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people would not listen to Samuel's warning. No, they said, we must have a king over us that we may be like all the other nations. Okay, so that goes on. He acquiesces. And then if, if uh, Gwen, if you put up chapter 12, in the next several chapters, um, uh, Samuel identifies Saul as the first king. And then it says, Samuel then gives his defense, similar to Moses's. Then Samuel said to all Israel, I have yielded to you and all you have asked of me and have set a king over you. Henceforth, the king will be your leader. As for me, I am grown old and gray, but my sons are still with you. And I have been your leader from my youth to this day. And then he says, Hineni, here I am. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and the presence of his anointed one. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I robbed? From whom have I taken a bribe to look the other way? I will return it to you. And they responded, you have not defrauded us and you have not robbed us and you have taken nothing from anyone. Samuel said to them, the Lord then is witness and his anointed is witness to your admission this day that you have found nothing in my possession. And they responded, yes, he is, we are witnesses. Isn't that a powerful passage about what's expected of a true leader? A true leader is serving God and the community, not himself. A true leader is serving God and the community not himself. Carol asked, so is the whole book of Kings meant to be an example of why we shouldn't have kings? If so, how does the reverence for David and Solomon fit in? I feel the same way, Carol. It's utter, the Jewish relationship to kingship is utterly ambivalent. <laughs> utterly ambivalent. Well, we 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 still have that ideal today, Susan. That's why there, are in, uh, uh, in terms of the accountability of leaders, that's why there are inspector generals in all of these departments. That's why we have whistleblowing laws. That's why we have, you know. But we are so far away from um, that being a reality. I suspect that in ancient Israel, and 
everywhere in between, we've always been far away from that reality. The innovation of Judaism and of democracy in its own time is that in ancient Israel, in that setting, kings were where it was at. Everyone had a king. That's what it's like to be a nation in ancient Israel. The question is, what is the status of the king? And this is what made ancient Israel, and this is what made Judaism unique in the ancient world. And I use that word specifically. You don't see this anywhere else. Because everywhere until the modern era, a king was understood to rule by divine right, which meant that the king was a representative of God on earth and therefore was not beholden to the same laws as everybody else, but was in fact the divine representative who was the source of those laws. The Torah legislates against that, which is one of the things to remember about the the sort of huh, the glorious centerpiece of the Torah, that all human beings are created in the divine image and no human being is divine. So then I want to show you, Gwen's going to put up Deuteronomy chapter 17, a section known as the laws of kings. Uh, thank you so much. So here are the laws in Deuteronomy about how a king must behave. If after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, and you decide, I will set a king over me as do all the nations about me. You shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not your kinsman. Now here's where we get to the, the, the rubber meets the road. Moreover, he shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since the Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. Okay, I have to pause there. God has said, don't go back to Egypt. What does that mean? Egypt is precisely the model that the Torah is trying to upend and permanently subvert. It's the model of Pharaoh. It's the model of tyranny where the king is not answerable to the law. And when he says in the Torah, you must not go back that way again, that's an incredibly powerful statement. Going back to Egypt is not just a geographical journey, right? It's an ideological journey. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a fundamental moral journey. Then what else about the king that you put on the throne? He shall not have many wives lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Okay. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I just don't even have to mention our current president. Uh, let's just, uh, uh, 
when he is seated on his royal throne, this is the amazing commandment, he shall have a copy of this Torah written for him on a scroll by the Levites and priests. This Torah, let it remain with him and let him read it in it, reading it all his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, to observe faithfully every word of this Torah, as well as these laws. Okay, what's the leader supposed to do to counteract human nature, which is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? He has to keep a scroll of the Torah by his throne and read it every day. Again, an analogy to the Constitution is appropriate. The laws by which you understand that no human being is above that law. And then it says, if he does this, he will not act haughtily toward his fellows or deviate from the instruction to the right or to the left, to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So the understanding of ancient Judaism is that the reason the Davidic monarchy failed was because they did not do this. That gets back to what Carol wrote, that even the reverence for the eternal house of David is contingent on them fulfilling these, um, these principles and living by them. And there's a very famous incident that uh, I'm sure many of you know about um, with King David, when he lusts after Bathsheba and in order, then impregnates her, and then in order to avoid scandal, so that uh, he sends her husband to the front to be killed in battle. And his prophet, there is a prophet someone who is the mouth, the voice of God in his court, who then confronts David with a parable about a man who had all the sheep he needed, who then saw a poor man next door and wanted his sheep too. So he killed that man and took his sheep and says to King David, what should become of this man who did this? And David says, well, he should face the consequences. He's, he's broken law. He should be. And Nathan famously says, famously says, Atahaish, you are the man. And David, when he realizes what he's done in the fever of his love and lust for Bathsheba, he, he does everything he can to repent, showing that the king is not above the law. Right? That's the purpose of that, one of the purposes of that famous story. So I hope I'm painting clearly for you the picture of um, um, why uh, uh, of of leadership in the Bible, of the understanding that Moses is the ideal leader because he doesn't enter into his position for personal gain, and of Korach as someone who wants to take something by becoming a leader. Um, Korach is considered to be the epitome, the archetype in Jewish thought of the demagogue, of the populist, 
of the one who says, we're all in this together as long as I'm in charge. Joan said, it seems the priests were to be scholarly law keepers like rabbis to teach the king. That's correct. The, um, the priests uh, in ancient Israel were the keepers of the sacred law, a role ultimately, and were the scribal caste as well, a role that shifted in time to the rabbis. That's right. So, as many of you know, in our story, um, the earth, they, the showdown happens. Moses says, okay, if we all die a natural death, then you, you weren't in the wrong and I wasn't in the right. But if something amazing happens now, uh, it'll show how God, what God thinks of your rebellion. And Moses warns everyone to get away from those men. <laughs> And the earth opens up, swallows them, and closes again. Something I wish I, wish I could make happen sometimes. Uh, it's a great solution uh, in this story. Uh, but I think the only way we're going to send people into oblivion uh, today is by voting. Um, and... Uh, uh, and then afterwards, um, the, the, of course, remember, the situation is so fraught that the people flip out again and say, we're going to die. We're all going to die. And uh, God says, I'm going to annihilate all of them. I cannot take this anymore once again. And Moses says, don't do it, God. Don't do it. So Moses is determined to carry this people, somehow schlep them to the promised land, somehow. And it's gonna be a long journey. And we're certainly on that journey. Uh, later, to show that Aaron is the appropriate leader, God does this beautiful display where he says, take each of the 12 tribes leaders and take their staffs. The word for uh, staff in Hebrew is mateh, which also means tribe. So the staff was the symbol of leadership. And plant them in the ground in, next to my tent of meeting. And then in the morning, Aaron's staff has sprouted leaves and flowers and almonds to show that Aaron is the source of leadership. Uh, so. I just wanted to share that uh, image with you of a sort of fruitful, alive, fecund connection um, that is the living connection where God's presence might be mediated through the leadership so that everyone can benefit from it. That's what it means to be a true servant as leader and our, again, ambivalent a uh, human situation where leaders um, are both in charge, but are also there to serve. And what an incredibly mm, delicate balancing act that is, that uh, requires a sense of both humility and awareness from anyone in a leadership position. Moses is not a shrinking violet. 
but he also understands that his purpose is to get these people to the promised land, not to aggrandize or enrich himself. Would anyone like to uh, uh, share anything about that? We can take the text down, Gwen, and all look at each other. In the few minutes we have left, I, it's amazing that I can talk for an hour. I kind of surprises, always surprise myself, and I hope it continues to be engaging for you. Then I'll just say, while you're typing, if anyone is typing, that the human condition has not changed since the Bible was uh, um, composed. And uh, Joan wrote, it's pretty discouraging that this is so basic to humanity. Uh, yes. I'm glad you said that, Joan. It's discouraging unless we embrace it as reality. Um, we're getting a depressing lesson. You might find it depressing. I find it um, clarifying because it's reality-based. And that is one of the things I can say without question about the Jewish understanding of human nature. It looks at us without um, fear or favor and says, you are a problematic lot. And here's the Torah to try to give you the instructions you need so that your better angels prevail over your base nature. Because if you don't, it's guaranteed to happen. And so we are living in essentially a struggle. It's a struggle to um, have the better aspects of our own natures and of our collective nature to prevail. But I would say it's a holy struggle. In other words, it's a worthy task. Um, and you win some and you lose some, and you then you go talk to your coach and forgive the sports metaphor, and then you get back on the field because you remembered what, the, what you're playing for. Uh, and uh, right now, um, Ellen Foreman said, I'm finding today's lesson very supportive and validating in dealing with our struggle today. Thank you, Ellen. That's also what I'm thinking. Uh, the Torah is there to say, We've been there and for thousands of years, we've put rules in the book and reminders for what it means to fight the good fight. Uh, and, and Joan says, and I pray for the strength to get through this. Um, I pray for your strength and for mine as well, because it is getting harder for me as it gets prolonged. Of course it is. Thank you for being so honest, Joan. This is quite a moment we're in, isn't it? Um, we don't even know what's going to happen between now and November. You know, we see that the, that the infrastructure, both physical and um, societal of our society, has been rotten for a while, rotting. And we see how the healthcare uh, delivery in a crisis with the lack of leadership, but also with the 
countless decades of built up income inequalities leads us, leads the situation to expose, as it were, the, some of the rotten um, beams and posts that hold our society together. What's gonna happen? We don't know. So again, let me reassure you, if it's any reassurance that the, the beauty for me of being part of a 3000 year tradition is that we've been working on this a long time. There are gonna be downs and ups and downs and ups. And our job is to keep the faith, keep the faith. And what I'm trying to share with you is this is it. Right, these lessons that I've been uh, trying to uh, articulate. Um, and Rebecca said, yeah, many leaders are still not practicing it. I would say most, Susan. Um, it all, but everybody's on a continuum somewhere, you know. And right now, you know, our national leadership is, is like at one end of the scale like we've never seen before. Rebecca says, it also makes it so inspiring to think with gratitude of leaders who have governed for the greater good. Yes, there are good leaders. There are good leaders. Nobody is 100% good because er, no, who becomes a leader without some ego who thinks they can't make it better? It's like we're complicated, but there are good leaders who put their egos in service of the greater good. In service of the greater good. Thanks for letting me opine and share these, uh, what for me are fabulous teachings. Um, let's, uh, let's sing this healing prayer. And anyone whose name you wanna type into the chat for healing, we'll include them in our awareness. 